Okay, ladies and gentlemen, let's get started here. I'm Dr. Mark Thornton. Uh, I work here at the Mises Institute. I'm a senior, senior fellow here, and it's a pleasure to be able to address you and to have the opportunity to do so. Uh, it's provided by the donors and the staff, Lou Rockwell, Jeff Deist, Pat Barnett, etc. Um, you might notice that I'm one of the few people who are wearing masks and that has, I'm not sick or anything, but I do live with somebody who is at risk. So I don't want to alarm anybody, but uh, that's just uh, something I feel I have to do. And uh, speaking of have to do, why, you know, is it really necessary for you to come to Auburn, Alabama during the hottest week of the summer during a so-called pandemic, and then be given a, a lecture on the minimum wage law. Many of you might think that the minimum wage is something that's settled, that economists agree on, and the whole body of evidence out there uh, comes to that one conclusion that minimum wage laws, if they're effective, cause unemployment. So that's really not the case. Um, this year marks a record number of new minimum late wage laws and increases in minimum wage laws across the country. So it's a little bit under the radar, but we've had uh, several years in a row of broken records with increases in the minimum wage law. So if the minimum wage law is supposed to cause unemployment, seems like that's probably not the right thing to do. And do economists agree? Do Austrians agree with mainstream neoclassical economists that minimum wage laws cause unemployment are unnecessary and generally harmful? Well, I'm going to argue here that the Austrian approach is much different. It's much more nuanced, and you get a better picture and a clearer outcome, actually, if you take the mainstream approach rather than the standard approach, which I'll show you in just a minute. Um, I will note before we begin in the, the analysis that all these increases in the minimum wage laws across the country in places like Seattle, San Francisco, other so-called progressive cities, has obviously not satisfied the advocates of the poor or whatever cause uh, they're promoting. They've gotten you know, increases, in some cases big increases, uh, in minimum wage laws, and it really haven't satisfied those critics at all. So you can't just uh, give in to the advocates of these types of policies. I'd also like to note the progressive origins of minimum wage laws. Okay, so the original progressives were late 19th and early 20th century economists, sociologists, political science uh, people, as well as just ordinary people. Uh, during the progressive era. They, one of the things that they promoted was minimum wage laws. They also promoted things like alcohol prohibition and so on. And 
we've come to know them uh, and the current advocates is something that you're trying to do something from the poor. You're trying to help, you know, disadvantaged groups. Uh, this is actually not the case at all. The original progressives advocated their policies not to help the poor, not to help minorities, but rather to hurt them. And minimum wage laws were, there's a lot written about it. And I encourage you to Google the progressive origins of minimum wage laws because they thought that what was necessary was to increase wages so as to discourage people from immigrating to the United States from other countries and to give an advantage, a discriminatory advantage to white men working in factories to keep blacks and other minorities out of the workforce. They called them the unemployables. Um, and so they wanted to keep them out of sight, out of mind, and build a and build a, an economy in which white men dominated the workforce, kept women at home, and kept minorities out of the economy. Uh, I'd, I'd give you some quotes, but it's just language that I find too distasteful to use in public. It's really that bad. So what is the minimum wage? I know you all know this, but it's a law that creates a price floor on payments to labor. So it prevents certain types of contracting between employees and employers. So you can pay higher wages, but not lower wages. So for the most part, the workforce is already above the minimum, so it doesn't really affect them that much, but it really cuts off certain people um, from work and earning an income. So the federal minimum wage law right now, as you probably know, is $7.25 an hour. Uh, most states, um, many states have um, their own minimum wage law, uh, several of which are higher than the federal law. And there are actually some states that have no minimum wage law at all on their own. So the federal uh, law applies in those cases. This animation is slow. Uh, and of course, you know, um, Several cities such as Seattle, San Francisco, Portland, Los Angeles, uh, Washington, D.C. have higher minimum wage laws than their state minimum wage laws. And again, these are just the places where we've seen a lot of civil disruption um, in those uh, city economies. This is this conventional analysis for uh, low-skilled unemployment. You have a supply of labor that people are willing to provide, and there's a demand for labor on the part of employers, and you have a market equilibrium wage rate, and the minimum wage is above that. And so as a result, the quantity supplied is greater than the quantity demanded, and the result is unemployment of labor. And again, this is the standard conventional analysis, uh, which is all true. 
But the Austrian analysis um, is less confusing and more exact. What does the minimum wage law do? Well, on the one hand, quote, famous economist, there's just no evidence that raising the minimum wage law costs jobs, at least when the starting point is as low as it is in modern America. This apparent defiance of the laws of supply and demand occurs because, quote, the market for labor isn't like the market for, say, wheat, because workers are people. And then on the other hand, any Econ 101 student can tell you the answer. The higher wage reduces the quantity of labor demanded and hence leads to unemployment. Clearly, these advocates of minimum wage law very much want to believe that the price of labor, unlike that of gasoline or Manhattan apartments, can be uh, set based on considerations of justice, not supply and demand, without unpleasant effects. Another famous uh, mainstream economist. Now, so who said those things? I'm getting this thing up on the board. Okay. Well, the first quote was from Paul Krugman, and the second quote was from Paul Krugman. <laughs> so even in his own mind, at different times, he said exactly the opposite thing about the minimum wage. And then here, we're going to take a look at um, a couple of recent studies both about Seattle's increase in the minimum wage a couple of years ago. The first was by the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, they looked at just the food industry. They looked at the 18% increase in the minimum wage that occurred at, at the time uh, recently. They found little or no change in wage pay and employment in full service restaurants, which is where you dine in, you get a waiter, a waitress, they bring your food to you, um, that sort of thing. Uh, just a 1% change. In limited services, uh, the increases were less than the uh, expected amount by 4%. But the hours of work declined by 13%. The University of Washington study looked at not just food service, but all industries with low wage labor. They found a redu reduced um, hours by 9%, uh, an increased wages by 3%, but a reduced monthly pay by $125 a month. And they also found that high-skilled labor uh, in restaurant jobs, um, that wage actually increased to over $19 uh, an hour in those jobs. Okay, so the reconciliation, and this, was, this went on back and forth in the state of Washington. It was really one of the main stories in, in Washington and elsewhere at the time. And it was set up like it was a big battle. But the reconciliation of these two, st two studies um, is basically both studies said the same thing. Increased wage price, wage rate, decreased hours work, quantity demanded, and reduces monthly pay. 
So it's not just a matter of unemployment. It's actually a matter of how much money do you get to take home at the end of the day. And both studies found a relative substitution of high-skilled for low-skilled jobs. So I'm going to recap what the Austrian perspective on the minimum wage labor is. Minimum wage laws cause some combination of the following things. Unemployment, which is fewer hours worked, fewer jobs, and fewer employers. Uh, The minimum wage is especially hard on small business people. Small business is the engine, really, of the economy. This is where jobs start. This is where business start. This is where capital formation starts. Every big business started as a small business, okay? Including Microsoft, including McDonald's. Uh, Every big business starts as as a small business. The successful ones obviously expand greatly. Okay. Uh, there's also a decrease in job benefits. Okay, so you can make an employer pay more wages, but that's only one aspect of a job. Okay. You want to look at the overall job package and the overall satisfaction. And jobs, as you know, include pay. Uh, Sometimes they include uniforms. Sometimes they include uh, vacation time. They include uh, health benefits. So the overall package is really what matters here. Mm. So you get decreased job benefits, which makes, makes people worse off, not better off. And then there's also a decrease in job uh, desirability. For example, uh, a lot of those studies that I previously mentioned, uh, they basically make people work harder. So you might have the same number of employees in a restaurant, but there's busier times, harder times of working, and the employer can adjust that. So instead of giving you four-hour shifts, they can give you three-hour shifts and with the consequence that you uh, keep the same number of employees, but you have fewer hours and less pay, but also you can be working the employees harder. For example, by making them work during rush hour. You can make uh, just general conditions, sanitary sanitary conditions, uh, air conditioning levels, lighting levels, All sorts of things can be adjusted downward in response to that higher minimum wage. There's there's also an increase in the demand for high-skilled labor. So you might, uh, as in the restaurant case, you might uh, hire fewer low-skilled workers, but then hire more high-skilled workers. So maybe more chefs, Uh, and less waiters, waitresses, janitors, that sort of thing. And then make the uh, high-skilled workers take up some of the slack with those missing jobs. And finally, jobs are or can be automated. Jobs can be partially or completely automated. One of the things that we've seen 
that most people have seen in response to um, higher minimum wages is that a lot of restaurants, especially fast food restaurants, which normally would hire a lot of workers, they've been automating the ordering process with kiosks. Uh, they've been automating the drinks uh, with special advanced machines, uh, and the list can go on and on. So, and this is not necessarily an exhaustive list of what actually happens uh, when minimum wages are increased. Another thing that is particularly undesirable, and some mainstream economists recognize, is discrimination. But this goes back to why the progressive social scientists wanted the minimum wage law and wanted a high minimum wage law is because they wanted employers to discriminate against minorities, against uh, children and female labor in favor of uh, adult male workers. So minorities and the inexperienced are the most negatively affected. And we'll look at some statistics from a study I did uh, in just a minute. Okay, so in the second quarter of 2017, uh, a normal period, not like the times we're living in right now, but a ra rather normal period, the total unemployment rate in the country, including everybody in the workforce, was 4.2%. Okay, so that's relatively normal. As full, um, you know, as mainstream economists would say, that the uh, natural rate of unemployment or the full employment level is usually an economy with four to five percent of people unemployed as they're transitioning or other changes uh, in the economy. If you look at teenagers, the unemployment rate at that time was 16.4 percent. Okay, so four times roughly the overall unemployment rate in the economy. If you look at white teenagers, that rate is slightly lower at 14.7%. If you look at black teenagers of the same age, 27.8%. Now, some of that can be explained away by where the black teenagers are actually living, but it's mostly explained by uh, employer discrimination. Hispanics, also higher than average, actually higher than uh, teenage overall unemployment at 19%. Uh, here's another study that I looked at a few years ago. It looks at the average unemployment rate of European Union economies with and without minimum wage laws. So European economies in the European Union, uh, and this is the period of 2004 to 2012, um, the uh, in all cases, uh, the average unemployment rate was much greater than European economies with no minimum wage laws. And obviously, the ones with minimum wage laws, some of them are higher, such as France. Others are lower, such as Portugal. Um, but over the entire period, it was consistent that um, unemployment rates uh, with minimum wage laws were higher. And at the end, 
the difference was about 4% of, of the overall economy. This is another study I looked at quite a while ago, but uh, basically the final month of the previous increase uh, in the minimum wage was in the summer of 2009. And this is an index on the vertical axis as an index of employment. So if you go back to 2008, uh, there were many more people, uh, many more teens employed at that point. And then as we get down to the summer of 2009, the index is at 100%, so the normal average index value. Um, and as we got closer and closer to this increase in, in the minimum wage law, what we saw was a declining employment of teens in the US. And then at the final moment, uh, excuse me, the final month, uh, in the summer of 2009, the employment index of teens uh, fell dramatically uh, by almost 10% in just a couple of months. So employers uh, prior to the minimum wage increase were hiring teenagers like crazy and as they came closer and closer to that hike in the minimum wage, they stopped, they started laying off and not hiring as many teens. And then once the new increase went into effect, uh, teenage employment dropped considerably. Okay. So the conclusions here are wage rates are determined by market conditions the relative scarcity of human and non-human resources. If you push the wage rate up, you're going to employ more non-human resources, capital, uh, automation, uh, and you're also gonna push down the total benefits uh, you're offering employees. Another Austrian conclusion about labor markets is that there is no unemployment in a pure market economy. So all employment in a pure market economy is voluntary. In the absence of government barriers. Wage rate increases are not something you can just legislate basically but wage races wage increases are driven by real things and the austrian economists and maybe some other economists realize that wage rates are driven by savings and capital formation okay you get increases in wage rates and i'm going to look at this in greater detail in my lecture on the industrial revolution Prior to the Industrial Revolution, say in the 17th century, people lived at subsistence levels. In other words, you could barely survive and people would die on a regular basis as a result of starvation, famine, disease, and so forth. 
once you have the Industrial Revolution, once you go from manual labor to capital-based labor, it's not just that the capitalists make more money, but labor makes more money as well. So one of the things we emphasize is that you need increases in capital, you need increases in savings uh, in order to extend and expand the structure of production. So we'll, we'll talk about this. You know, prior to the Industrial Revolution, people had very limited tools. Nothing was mechanized. Nothing was automated. We didn't have any advanced technology or advanced uh, capital goods in the economy. And so it was pretty much um, you know, a very limited economy. And after the Industrial Revolution takes place, there's an increase in wages and other things uh, that grows consistently. And we're going to look at you know, what happens to humanity. Uh, and so whereas the minimum wage law is talked about by mainstream economists basically uh, as a matter of employment and unemployment, jobs, where the Austrian analysis is much more detailed, much more nuanced, looking at all aspects of the market that are impacted. With the Industrial Revolution, it's all about wages. And so they've conducted an enormous amount of uh, research and publishing, but it's all simply just in terms of wages. And so there's a back and forth, just like there is with the minimum wage law, there's a back and forth, one study says this, one study says that, and there's no conclusion. There's no conclusive conclusion. And the same thing happens in the debate over the Industrial Revolution. It's all about wages, and there's a back and forth uh, without looking at human action, without looking at all the aspects of the standard of living. And so while there's no real conclusion in mainstream economics about the Industrial Revolution, uh, which seems preposterous, right? But that's actually the case. Most people actually think of the Industrial Revolution as a terrible thing. And I'll show you why that's the case. Another important thing here is that early job experience greatly improves lifetime earnings. So if teenagers can't get a job, if minority teenagers can't get a job when they're 16 or 17 or 18, their lifetime outcomes in the economy are going to be greatly negatively impacted. So I think one of the greatest scourges of the minimum wage law is the fact that not only does it negatively affect the young, negatively affect minorities, but it also sidetracks people in their career earning potential. And this is exactly what the progressives wanted. They wanted people to be marginalized. And again, I encourage you to Google the progressive origins of the minimum wage law. And probably the most important general conclusion here is that minimum wage laws hurt their intended, intended beneficiaries.
Now, there are a lot of ways to help the poor. There are a lot of ways to help minorities. There are a lot of ways to help the disadvantaged, people with disabilities. So we don't want to leave the table empty here. Uh, we want to look at how do you help the poor? Well, the first thing you can do is eliminate the minimum wage law and compulsory education. It sounds like a very mean-hearted suggestion, but it's actually better uh, for teenagers to be working um, and getting out of the public schools as quickly as possible. Obviously, if they're in a good school or private school, uh, that, that may be a different story because education is so important. Studies have conclusively shown that if you have a good uh, education, you go to a good college, uh, and you succeed at that level, your lifetime earnings are going to be significantly higher than those uh, with just a high school education. Job experience leads to higher wages. So we want people to have job experience, even if they're still in school. You can do more than one thing in life at the same time. We can eliminate monopoly grants uh, by governments that keep people um, out of professions. Okay? Most of the high-paying professions are heavily licensed. You know, It would be nice if we could all be doctors and lawyers and so on and so forth, uh, but all of those professions are licensed. In other words, keeping people out. You know, they don't call it the bar exam for nothing. We can lower the cost of living and increase opportunities by deregulating the economy. One of the things we have seen uh, during the Trump administration is that a lot, there's been a lot of deregulation or a lot of uh, decreased enforcement of regulation, and that's in those sectors what we can identify that have been deregulated, um, there's more jobs. I have a, a PhD student who conducted a study and found that for every regulator that we eliminate a position for, GDP can grow by as much as $7 million. And there's a lot of regulators. There's 115,000 financial service industry regulators in Washington, D.C. alone. And, you know, it's not like we're having a great, stable economy. We're on a roller coaster. And these are the people who are supposed to be stabilizing everything, and their presence has actually just uh, created more havoc in the economy and fewer jobs and a lower GDP. We can eliminate taxes on labor, of which there are many. And I think we can certainly eliminate uh, taxes on low-skilled labor. Uh, it only discourages jobs, and it doesn't generate much revenue. Okay, and we also want to eliminate the welfare trap, or what used to be called the welfare trap. Uh, if you're if you don't have a job and you get onto welfare, uh, for every new job and for every hour you work, you lose pretty much exactly the same amount, amount in welfare benefits. So it's a trap because the tax 
the effective tax on any income you earn in the legal economy is taxed away at roughly 100%. I just did a recent study, and there are at least 89 different welfare programs in the U.S. So there is so much we can do to help the poor, to help the young, to help minorities, to help the discriminated against, um, that doesn't involve more economic intervention by the government. It means less government intervention is really the key uh, to helping the people that we actually want to help. Thank you very much.